Our Apostle Paul has come to Athens without Silas and Timothy. They remain in the region of Macedonia, seemingly near Berea. They are to come down at Paul's command to be with him. It does seem to be the case that Luke is with Paul, the author of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is often quiet about his presence in any scene except for his choice of pronouns. We saw this. We said this. We did this. And then sometimes he is without the we because he was not there himself but is reporting what he has gathered from others. In our text today, we will hear the Apostle Paul speak in the great city of Athens and even more prominently at the Areopagus, where the high council of philosophers and scholars gathered and debated all sorts of things and traded on all knowledge that was new. They loved things that were new. And rightly, someone said that in hell there will be a new edition of the paper every five minutes. For it is the frivolity and lust of the heart to entertain things that are new. But the eternal God, who is not new, sends his servant Paul to testify to a covenant of grace that is not new, but it can make men such, can make men and women new. We will take two messages from this passage in Athens, one today, a broad brush, and next Lord's Day, more fine detail on certain verses in the sermon. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do ask and pray that you would grant us a blessing upon the reading of your word and upon its preaching. Father, assist us, one and all, in giving attention to that which our master speaks. Grant us to recognize his voice. Grant us, we pray, O Lord, to recognize your authority herein, your word. Grant us such saving faith. And we ask, O Lord, that you would help us, that you would come and grant by your Holy Spirit illumination to our hearts and minds and wills, that we would be indeed, Lord, sanctified and even justified. If any are outside of Christ today, dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray, O Lord, that you would visit them as you have us believers, that you would open their hearts and they would recognize the authority of your word and that they would come to Christ with great joy. The one true God who does not count our trespasses against us, but against himself on the cursed tree. Oh Lord, we pray that even in this place, on this day, under this inclement weather, if it pleases you, souls would be saved. Lord, build up the church of Jesus Christ to your honor, to your praise, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 17, verse 16, to the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then our offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. While Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy to arrive from the north, from Macedonia down into Achaia, Paul quickly discovered he could not just quietly wait He could not just pass the time. The great city of Athens was full of idols. They had many gods, but they did not know God. They had altars, temples, statuary, pagan priests, pagan sacrifices, and all kinds of daily devotional practices to appease these many gods. In Athens, they also had countless symbols of phallic worship and sexual obsession 
on public display throughout the city, just like in Pompeii. These symbols were attached to private homes, to public buildings. They were on amulets. They were on frescoes. They were on drinking cups. They were on vases. And these sexual symbols purpose to ward off evil spirits. Paul's eyes burned. Paul's eyes not being the eyes of a tourist, but the eyes of an evangelist of the eternal God, took all of this in, and it quickly became a provocation in his spirit. Beloved, what provokes you? Pray that God would so tune your heart that you are provoked by idolatry wherever you find it, whether in the church or out of the church. Pray to God that your greatest provocations of spirit are not the loss of the Green Bay Packers or the loss of Aaron Rodgers. Pray to God that your greatest provocations of your spirit are not simply the disobedience of your children. That is a small kingdom to be disturbed by. Pray that the Lord would give you the spirit of this apostle. Paul is provoked to see men and women created by the eternal God fumbling about in the dark, worshiping stone and sticks, worshiping created things. This caused Paul no little distress. And what great restraint he shows when he finally speaks on the Areopagus. Not only were the Athenians enslaved to Satan's blinding power, but the truth of God was unknown in that place, and thus the true God was not worshipped in that place, and thus man, the pinnacle of the true God's creation, was defiled in that place, the great city. Well, let's think a little bit more about this city. Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world. It was the native city of Socrates and Plato. It had become the adopted city of Aristotle and the adopted city of Epicurus, father of the Epicureans, who denied any god had created the world and taught that pleasure was the chief good of mankind. It had also become the adopted city of Zeno, father of the Stoics. The Stoics believed in a creating god, but they taught that all happiness consisted in virtue and in insensibility of the soul to pain. Now, when the best and brightest of men in the ancient world wanted to learn, they came to one of three university cities, Athens or Alexandria or or Tarsus, where Paul grew up. They came to study philosophy in these universities and rhetoric, And among these three, Athens was number one. Its contributions in sculpture, in literature, in philosophy were unparalleled in the ancient world. Athens was Manhattan. But then along comes the Apostle Paul. And he cannot adore this city. Paul cannot say, what a great place this is. Paul cannot say, look how sophisticated they are. 
Paul cannot say the world has so much to learn from them. Why does Paul lack enthusiasm for Athens? Well, I'm sure he liked the Euros. But why does he lack enthusiasm for this city? Because everything Paul sees in this world, everything he sees in the whole city of man, he now sees in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bodily resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. All power and all authority are in Jesus. As he himself says in Revelation 1.17, and he says this to all men who fear other gods or fear other powers or fear other authorities, Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The resurrection has changed everything especially for Paul. This is why the resurrection is the backbone of Paul's preaching in Athens. Verse 18 says Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection in both the Jewish synagogue and the public market. Verse 31 says Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection at the Areopagus when he is brought before this high council of 30 scholars. Paul is preaching the resurrection because he wants to deliver a people from ignorance and darkness. They do not know where they came from. They do not know why they exist. They do not know who has come down from heaven to be among men. They do not know what is coming at the end of history. And they do not know Who will judge the world? They know a lot. They've built a lot. But there's so many fundamental things to existence and the future and the past that the Athenians do not know because they are idolaters. So let's go through the questions again with answers. Where have the Athenians come from? Paul tells them. The God who raised Jesus from the dead, he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind. Where do the, why, excuse me, why do the Athenians exist as Athenians and not as Americans? Answer, because the God who raised Jesus from the dead, he determined the allotted period and the boundaries of their dwelling place so they should seek God and perhaps find him. Question, who has come down from heaven to serve the Athenians, even while they were yet dead in their trespasses and sins and could do nothing to serve the living and true God? Answer, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, he has come down. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Question, what is coming at the end of history? A day. A day. Fixed by the living God, 
who raised Jesus from the dead, a day of judgment for all the living and the dead, a day on which all things will be brought into the light, things now hidden in darkness, a day on which the Lord will disclose the purposes of every heart. And last question, who will judge the world on that day? The one man whom God, the one man whom the God who created all things has already raised up from the dead, he will be the judge. He will be the judge, and the one who already submitted himself to death will be the judge. All men will yield to him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Even those who will be cast into outer darkness will bow. But before Paul arrived, the Athenians were ignorant of all these things. Can you imagine how much a groper in the dark you would be if you knew none of these things? Praise God you know these things. Praise God that you could almost go through that short catechism we just went through and walk another person through it yourself. But there, was, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Athens who didn't know those answers at all. The best they could do was to ma- maintain an altar to the unknown God. Now, Athens had many of these. They were all over the place. Writers outside of Scripture have identified these altars and have been writing about them for millennium. The altars to the unknown God in Athens. Verse 23. So in their devotion to all the gods they do know, who are no gods at all, they fear there may be one whom they have overlooked. They think this altar of ignorance is therefore some kind of security. They put fruit upon it. They put blood upon it. They put offerings upon it through their appointed priests. It's a kind of security altar, but Paul sees it as evidence of the great ruin that will come upon them if they remain ignorant of God. And so Paul comes and preaches Jesus and the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything. The resurrection of it is like a lightning strike within human history that has never, ever faded. Wouldn't that be quite a lightning strike? We'd all be lined up getting our generators charged. But this is even better than that. This actually is the lightning strike that testifies to our soul that death is defeated and that there is one man who holds the keys to it. By this always-on light of the lightning strike of resurrection, we can see now where we are and where all other men are in relation to God. Are we far from God? Are we near to God? Are we in grave danger with God? Are we at peace with the judge? Beloved, we must not overlook how central the resurrection of Jesus is to the metaphysics of our apostles. Now hang in there. When you hear that little word meta, you should be thinking something that transcends all things. 
Metaphysics is about the fundamental nature of all reality. The resurrection of Jesus reveals the metaphysics of God, the metaphysics of the creator. The resurrection of Jesus reveals fundamentally that humanity is loved by God. The resurrection of Jesus reveals that the one God who made from one man every nation of mankind refuses to let his creation be destroyed by sin. That is revealed in the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus reveals that our human nature finds its warrant and its destiny in God's own son. Just as the mother of all living, what's her name? Eve, scripture calls her the mother of all living. Just as Eve was taken from Adam's side, so too the bride of Christ, the church, has its life in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, her risen Savior. These truths are at the foundation of all reality. It is ignorance, worthy of judgment, to shut your eyes at this light. And this is why you hear the apostles throughout the book of Acts proclaiming again and again the resurrection every chance they get, just as Paul is doing here in Athens. Take Peter. In his Pentecost sermon, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Acts 2.32. In his next sermon at Solomon's portico, Peter says to his fellow Jews, You killed the author of life, whom God raised up from the dead. To this we are witnesses, Acts 3.15. In a summary statement of all the apostolic activity thus far, Luke writes, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 4.33. Then after they were threatened, after they were imprisoned, it says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 5, 29 through 31. Then when Peter is at Cornelius' house in Caesarea, Peter says, And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. Then, in Antioch, Pisidia, Paul preaches, saying, Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Acts 13, 28. And now what does Paul preach in Athens? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fundamental inescapable reality that governs Paul's life, yes, even all life, is the resurrection of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that one who in the beginning was the word and was with God and is God, that one who came among us, he will be at the end 
as well. As he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation twenty-two thirteen. He will judge the world on that fixed day at the end. And no one will be able to get a hall pass. No one will be able to slip out the back door. The destiny of all the human race is to appear on that fixed day before that appointed man and undergo the judgment. He will either on that day count our trespasses against us because we rejected his divinity and we thus remain exposed to the condemnations of his holy law, or on that day he will openly acknowledge us and acquit us because by faith we took shelter in him, shelter in his obedience, shelter in his righteousness, shelter in his love. That day is coming. Put it on your calendar, but don't circle a particular day. But it is coming. Here's why Paul preached. men and women enslaved to counterfeit gods. So that day does not fall upon them like a millstone. Paul is lacking enthusiasm for what he finds in Athens, but he's not lacking compassion. He is not lacking love. He is not sitting in a Starbucks working on his fifth cappuccino, waiting to get out of town. Is indeed lacking enthusiasm, but not love. He knows exactly who these people are. They are the ones who once lived, as Isaiah said, in the land of deep darkness. But it is time for the lights to come on in those lands. That is what's happening in redemption. his plan and purpose so that he would bring the good news of salvation to the nations, not to make them Jews, but to make them It is time for the lights to come on, and the living God is coming out among the nations. Look at verse 30. himself without witness, 
For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What do those words mean in 1416 and 1730? The times of ignorance. The overlooking. In your King James, you probably see it if you have that before you. He winked at those times, it says. What does this mean? Well, these words do not mean that the ignorant nations had no guilt because they were ignorant. That's not what this means. That's why Paul is there. They are laden and heavy with guilt. The Old Geneva Study Bible notes this very well. The oldness of the air does not excuse those that err, but it commends and sets forth the patience of God, who nonetheless will be a just judge to those who condemn him. So the nations, the people out in the lands where there is no Moses, where there is no law, where there are no Jewish Jewish state or theocracy, the people living far from the light, the nations were guilty of idolatry even though they did not know God. The point of verse 30 is that God patiently allowed the nations to eat, to drink, to bear children, to harvest crops, to build cities. He did not destroy them did not wipe them off the face of the earth utterly and end their peoples. Why then is God coming to them now? Because it is the fullness of time. All the debts of sinners have been answered in the Redeemer. He is coming now to save idolaters by preaching of repentance to them for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is what the church of Jesus Christ continues until the end of the age to do. Learn from your apostle. Apple Valley Presbyterian Church does not exist in this time, in this place, to simply go out and tell the wicked how wicked they are and we can't wait to see them judged on Judgment Day. That is something that's not Christian. The Church of Jesus Christ exists to go out and liberate idolaters from their worship of counterfeit gods so that when the Day of Judgment comes, their sins are not counted against them. Isn't that your greatest happiness, that that has come to you? Or or does something else make you more happy? Is your greatest joy and treasure something other than the gospel? Well, if it is, then surely it would be easy for you to think that the biggest purpose of the church is to declare simply wickedness, wickedness, wickedness upon the wicked and keep from them the good news. Learn from our apostle. Well, how about us then in the 21st century? Are we who live in the Western world in 2021 anything like the Athenians that so grieved Paul's spirit? Do the nations of the West need to be saved from idolatry? Yes, we do. Certainly. Our idolatry in the West, of course, 
has become so much more sophisticated than ancient idolatry. Satan is swift on his feet. In the West, we are easily embarrassed today to be found bowing down to statues and kissing wood carvings. Not so embarrassed yet about selfies. I hope that comes soon. We are so embarrassed to be caught hugging a tree. <clears throat> this is why we have skillfully in our sin and unbelief in the West shifted our self-deceptions. We have gone to embed our idols in principles and in ideologies. We have carved our idols into ambitions. One of the strong idolatries, most alive today in Western culture, which was first embraced by leftist academics 50 years ago, but has gone populist, is the idolatry of postmodernism. In, in his 1979 book titled The Postmodern Condition, French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard gave this definition of postmodernism. Simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodernism as incredulity toward metanarratives. In other words, disbelief towards stories that transcend all stories. That's what he's saying. What are metanarratives? Metanarratives are a grand structural story that governs and explains all other stories. But postmodernism, beloved, is in the air. It's everywhere. Postmodernism, the idol of postmodernism, teaches that meta-narratives are tall tales that we have been told all our lives about existence, but these tales have not kept their promises. Instead, postmodernists argue that these grand stories have been told simply so that others could gain power over us. This is one of the great idols sweeping the West right now. Extreme postmodernists want to dismantle all meta-narratives. They want people to live their own stories without any fear of judgment. They want people to be persuaded that there is no final meta-narrative that will relativize or judge every other story. Your truth will be yours and mine will be mine. This is in the water. This is in the air. Christianity, however, is unavoidably a meta-narrative, which means our faith is constantly in conflict with the most dominant idol of our age. Should that make us mad? Not at all. Should it provoke our spirit? Yes. <clears throat> but unto what? Unto gospel preaching of Jesus in the resurrection is what? Christianity is the one story that rules them all. Yes, I borrowed that from Tolkien. It is the one narrative that explains mankind's origins, mankind's miseries, mankind's death, and mankind's destiny. The Christian faith testifies to an ontological and a metaphysical reality that applies to all men, whether they honor it or not. All men past, all men present, all men future. <coughs> and because Christianity is a meta-narrative, it is specially targeted for contempt in cultures saturated by postmodern idolatry. They claim that our call to be reconciled to one grand story 
is really just power-mongering on our part, our wish to control people. It's very convenient, of course, how these idolaters, which we were once among them, but it's very convenient how these idolaters dismiss themselves from having a story that controls men and women. Theirs is just no meta-narratives. That's their narrative. Hang in there with me. Though a growing suspicion of meta-narratives is creating a great challenge for Christians in the West, we need to understand that proclaiming God's glorious and gracious meta-narrative is still the only way to face the challenge. We face the challenge of a, dis- of a hatred of meta-narratives by continuing to proclaim the meta-narrative. Remember Paul's ministry to these people in Athens. The content of this sermon on the Areopagus is all meta-narrative. Did you notice it? <clears throat> Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Verse 24. That's meta-narrative. He goes on to tell how God cannot be contained by man-made temples, which is a critique of all the altars and statuary and temples in Athens. Paul then tells how God has ordered the time of every man's birth. That's meta-narrative. And the place of every man's dwelling. That's meta-narrative. Then Paul's speech crescendos with the undiluted meta-narrative claim of the resurrection and the day of judgment. That's in verse 31 and 31 and 30 and 31. Beloved Paul critiqued. He critiqued. He critiqued the culture and its idolatries. There is no way to be part of the advance of Christ against the gates of hell without being part of a critiquing community called the Church of Jesus Christ. Not a pompously critical community. Don't mishear me, those of you who prefer that. (laughs) But a critiquing community out of compassion to liberate those in bondage to Satan's idols. In our time and in our place, idols then are embedded in narratives rather than in stone. Many things that were to be kept under God's rule have been exalted by sinners to become gods themselves. Sex, science, self, even the state. These are not new. These are the uncarved idolatries of our age. Men seek deliverance in these instead of in Christ. And this, beloved, should provoke our spirit. But to do something about it, we will have to critique the narratives where these idols are erected. And it may be in your school. It may be in your home. It may be at your Thanksgiving table. It may be in your own soul as you breathe the air of this deep suspicion of one story that rules them all. But I want you to not overlook that this is not all about critique. Do not overlook that Paul proclaimed Christ. There is one man appointed to judge, he said. This, of course, is what those suspicious of meta narratives most want to avoid. 
the consolidation of power in the hands of a few. Paul says it's even fewer than that. It's consolidated into one man's hands. That's actually very good for us in the advance of the gospel. Because who is this one man? Who is this one man who has been raised from the dead? He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one crucified for our sins. His power, his authority are real, all-encompassing, but his power and authority do not lie to you like men. His power and authority dies for you. The Christian gospel is a a meta-narrative unlike anything the world has heard. It is not a meta-narrative of corrupt power-grabbing. It is a meta-narrative of holy grace where the one man who possesses all power and all authority lays down his life for us to take it up again for us. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority, authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. John ten eighteen. let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us and make us clean instruments in your hand for the testifying of Jesus in the resurrection. We pray, Father, that as each month goes by, we, the children of God, would be found less and less clinging to the idols of our age. That our very conduct would indeed be a testimony and witness that we are living for he who lives. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that even as we recognize wickedness and idolatry among the nations, including our own, that our hearts would not harden. Lord, we pray that we would continue to learn from our apostles who seem to be without exhaustion in bringing the good news to those living in deep darkness. Father, we pray that you would make us a little bit more skillful in this ourselves. Lord, we pray that as each month goes by, your church here at Apple Valley would grow strong in her desire to testify in her public worship, in her private conversations, and her conduct to testify that Jesus is risen and the day of judgment is coming. And we have nothing to fear, for we are reconciled to he who holds the keys. May we testify to all men the way of reconciliation. In his name, amen.